So go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this evening. And uh, what I want to do is I want to introduce a new series for just the month of March this evening. We're calling this series uh, Family Culture. Um, we kind of sense that, how many of you guys were here for Chris Cruz a couple weeks ago? It's like three weeks ago now. Awesome. If you, if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here, you should go and listen to that message. It was really, really awesome. He was talking about um, developing a culture of honor. It's something that we as leaders are, are definitely passionate about. It's even part of our core values is that we celebrate every person by creating a culture of honor. So it's, it's very, very close to our hearts. But what, what I sense Chris Cruz doing um, and kind of what we sense God doing in the, in the, in the following weeks was kind of doing a tune-up on our church when it comes to our family culture. So what I want to do is I want to do a little bit of a family culture tune-up, and uh, what, what I'm hoping for is just to kind of get ourselves a little bit sharper on some of the things that we already care about and value as a family, Okay. These are things that, uh, they're not things that we don't have. You know, we have these things, I think, in our church already. But what I want us to do is just get a little bit sharper on some things. So really, I've sensed there are three areas that I want to tune us into as a family. And that's our minds, our speech, and our relationships with one another. So our minds, we're going to talk about tonight. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about our speech, and then we're going to talk about our relationships with one another. And these are just really three kind of family culture areas that he's wanting to shape our family here at Saints Hill into. So tonight, I want to talk about the mind. I would argue that there really is nothing in all of your life that will impact you and impact the people around you, impact your immediate family, the friends you have, the people you work with, more than the way that you think. More than how you think about the world. How you think about yourself, how you think about God, how you think about the world and, and where the world is going in general, um, when good comes, when bad comes, will determine the level of kingdom that you see in your life. Some of you guys are snoozing, hang on. Okay, um, the way in which you think when a good thing happens to you, the way in which you think when a bad thing happens to you, will often determine how much of the kingdom you see in your life. God's designed it this way. This is, this is actually his intention. Um, God is in search of partnership, okay? So he gives humans, because he loves partnership, because he hasn't just like created us to be playthings, because he actually wants us, he wants a relationship with us, he's given us the ability to choose to agree with him or to choose to disagree with him. Isn't that fascinating that he puts two trees in the garden? He's interested in having partnership. And so he's interested in giving us the ability to not choose him, but at the same time giving us the ability to say, no, I'm choosing you, I say yes to you, Right? Much of what God intends for a people, think this people, much of what God intends for a place, think Newburgh, stands knocking at the door of your mind. What I mean is this. God may intend to do something that is just amazing in a place. He may intend to do something great in a people, but without the minds of people in that place coming into agreement with him, we may not see all that he's intended. 
He, he, because he's given us choice, he's looking for our agreement. He's looking for this partnership relationship with us where we say, oh, I've caught your vision for this. I've caught your, your insight, what you desire for this person, and now I'm coming into alignment with you. Okay, I'm going I'm to agree with you about this thing. See, the, the mind, the way that we think, plays an incredible role in seeing heaven come. When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we can pray that all we want, but if we're disagreeing with heaven coming, it's not going to come. Look down at your Bibles. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Oh, I'm not there. Hang on. Oh, Romans. I was in Romans 1. need to add a few there. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, Paul speaking, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now notice this. Then, when your mind is renewed, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So have you ever wondered, like, God, what is your will for my life? Where am I going? What am I doing? Is that just me? I don't think it's just me. I think it's many of you. Um, How do you find out his will? You get your mind renewed. What is the renewed mind, though? Have you ever heard, read that? I mean, many of you are probably familiar with this passage even. Have you ever read that passage and thought, okay, but what does it mean to have my mind renewed? What is the renewed mind? Well, it is the renewing of your mind that enables you to know what to do in every situation, understanding what God's will actually is. So another way to think about it is that there are many ways of thinking but there is only one way to think kingdom. The renewed mind is thinking how God thinks. Have you ever thought about God's thoughts? Like God has, it says, well, it's very clear in the scriptures that God has a lot of thoughts. <laughs> in fact, it says about a single person, he, his thoughts about one person outnumber the sand on the seashore. And there's a lot of people. <laughs> That's a lot of thoughts. Have you ever thought about, oh, I wonder what God thinks about this? I wonder what God thinks about my kid and what my kid just did. I wonder what God thinks about this class that I'm taking. I wonder what God thinks about the decision I just made. What does he think about it? I know what I think about it. Thinking saved or thinking renewed is thinking about God, thinking about the world, thinking about yourself in a way that is congruous with how God thinks about those things. That's the renewed mind. And like Jesus taught us, this way of thinking is a heaven-to-earth mentality. It's thinking heaven-to-earth. You know, Jesus gives us this great, these great instructions about how to pray, but our lives are to become prayers. So every part of our lives have to come into that equation, which is on earth as it is in heaven. So the normal mode of thinking is, and many of you, maybe you even think this way, maybe the people around you think this way, the normal mode of thinking for humans kind of works like this. We don't think heaven to earth, we think earth to heaven. We, we allow what has become normative in the world around us to inform how we see God, how we see the world, and how we see ourselves, rather than the other way around. And, and I really think, uh, this may be a little bit bold to say, so I'm willing to take the emails for this one. I really think that this specifically, thinking earth to heaven, has led to an increase in mental illness in our country. I really think it can be boiled down to that. 
When you think earth to heaven, when earth is what informs the way you think about God, <laughs> yikes, when earth is the way that informs the way you think about yourself, <laughs> when earth is the way that you think about the world, oh, it's always just going to be this way, do you know what happens? You lose hope. And when you lose hope, you fall into depression. And the purpose of life then becomes this. Either, if you're a follower of Jesus, it becomes sin management. So the best you can hope for in all of your life is, I'm just going to try and manage my, my stuff, God, because I don't know that you're actually that good, because if I look around me, it seems like a lot of bad stuff is happening, and maybe you're going to strike me with some of that bad stuff, so I'm just going to try and do the right thing. And that's if you're a follower of Jesus. And then if you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe if, sometimes even if you are a follower of Jesus, the, the, the normal life gets boiled down to this. Accumulating small luxuries in order to drown out the disillusionment of a hopeless life. Just accumulating stuff in order to feel better about the hopelessness that you feel. That process is called being conformed. I love what it says, uh, conformed to the what? The pattern of this world. So if you think like everybody else, you know that you've been conformed to a pattern. There's been a preset on how you think, and as you look around, if, 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 let me just say this. If the way in which you think looks like one of two options, liberal or conservative, you've been conformed to this world. So, but the scriptures say that we're supposed to be transformed. So the question is this, well, how do you get a renewed mind? How do you get a renewed mind? You win the battle between truth and your perception. If being conformed is allowing what you perceive to become your truth, how do you get a renewed mind? How do you think saved? How do you think like him? You, you win the battle between truth and what you perceive. Here, here's what I mean. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 32. He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's all say that together. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a good passage. I like that passage. Um, that, that word in Greek for truth is aletheia. Can you say that with me? Aletheia, Okay. And uh, this word is used over, it's like 109 times, I think, exactly in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Now, oftentimes, this word aletheia is translated as reality. Isn't that interesting? So it can mean truth or reality. And in the Greek mind, those are one and the same. So all throughout the New Testament, you have this word aletheia showing up, and it's saying reality, reality, reality. Well, what does this mean? What it means is that we could maybe put that verse back up there. We could translate, we have legal precedent to translate this verse this way. You will know reality, and reality will set you free. Right? Whichever reality you agree with, whichever reality you believe, that's the reality you're going to live in. He has a reality, right? And apparently when you know his reality, you get free. But there's another reality, isn't there, right? And whichever one you agree with, that's the one that you're going to get. Either you look at your life and you go, oh, the freedom that I have, the ability that I have to be myself, the I, I just feel so free. That's not random. You've believed a reality that's led to that. You look at your life and you go, oh my gosh, I'm so insecure. Oh my gosh, I, you know, I, when I get money, I feel bad about it. When I don't have it, I wish I had it, and I feel, I feel jealous, and oh, I'm just, I'm a mess. You've believed a reality that's based in lack that's led to that. 
I think Abraham just illustrates this the best. Okay, so we're going to do a big flip, flipping your Bibles to the left, to Genesis chapter 15. This is just such a, an amazing passage, and one that I, I really feel like has shaped my life and certainly shaped our church. Um, so Genesis chapter 15, and, uh, and, and we're going to read about Abraham in just a moment here. Put up, go ahead and put up the next slide. Um, how many of you, maybe you're a Bible student out there, or you, you, you've heard of this before, how many of you have ever heard the principle of first mention? Anyone? Hands up, nice and high. Principle of first mention. Okay, not many of you, I've got to define it. So, what that means, what the principle of first mention means when you're studying the Bible is this. The first time something's mentioned, that situation, that context gives definition to that idea. Okay? So the first time we read about sin... Let me ask you this. Does God get closer to humans or further away from them? Just spatially, think about it. He gets closer. So when you sin, is God going to be repelled by your sin and get further away from you, or is he going to come closer to you? Oh, come on. Is he going to get closer to you? Yeah, right? There's a principle of first mention. It defines the way that we think about things as we go on. Um, Genesis 15 defines uh, righteousness for us. Now, I would just ask you off the top of your head, think about some righteous activities. Like, when you think about somebody who's really righteous, uh, maybe there's images of the 1980s that come to mind, focus on the families close by, and you got, like, there's a guy in a tie or something with a suit jacket. It's not righteousness. But, but just think about what are righteous activities. Maybe you get a little bit more modern, and you're, you're thinking over the past 10 or 12 years in the church, it's justice work, right? That's what it means to be righteous. Maybe you grew up in a church where it's like, the bigger your Bible, the more righteous you were, or something like that. It's like, man, that guy has a huge Bible. He is very righteous. Um, I remember seeing, like, uh, I'd walk, you'd walk into, like, a Christian bookstore. We don't even have, any, have them anymore. But you walk into a Christian bookstore, and there was a poster up on the wall, and it was like, God answers an email. And it was like just shredded like knees in, these, in a pair of jeans. And you're like, okay, uh, I guess that's righteous. Maybe praying a lot is righteous. Maybe reading your Bible a lot is righteous. Well, Genesis 15 is the first time that the word righteousness is used. So what does it mean? We're going to get a definition about what righteousness actually means. Look down in your Bibles, verse 1. Uh, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now pause, look up at me. If you don't know the story of Abraham, here's basically what's going on. He's been called from his hometown. He's been called from his family to go to a new place that God is leading him. The God of, the, of Israel, Yahweh, is leading him to. And Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's never had kids. He's entering this really old age. And he's really beginning to question. You know, God at one point had said, no, I'm going to give you kids. And he's like, okay. You know, have you ever had somebody tell you that they're going to do something and then you don't hear about it for like a month? And you're like, I wonder if they're still going to do that thing. And is it weird if I ask them again? Or like, you know. Um, it's one of those situations. So he's like, okay, you, you told me to leave my family. You told me to leave my country. But um, what's going to be there for me, Right? God's consoling him. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. You're looking for it, I know. Verse two. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? How can you be my reward since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
So Abram has this reality, and the reality is this. He's really old, <laughs> like 100 years old. He's super old, and uh, he just can't have kids, period. They've never been able to conceive. They've never been able to have children. Um, this being the case, some random guy named Eleazar of Damascus is going to inherit all of this stuff. So it totally stinks. Look back down at your Bibles. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him, and this is what God says to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky. Man, it's good to get your eyes up when you've gone introspective. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now pause, look up at me. God comes, and he says, listen, I'm going to give you kids. Now, you've got to imagine that Abram at this point is like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, you, have to, you have to understand the, the internal turmoil that this would have been in his life. See, um, kids in this age and in this time were meant prosperity, they really did. It meant that, you know, now we have kids and you spend your whole life serving the kids. And if you're lucky, they eventually move out of your house and then you're still worried about them all the time. Back in this day, you had kids because you had farm work to do. So you're like, hey, you're born. You can carry a shovel. Okay, come on over here. Here's what we're going to do. So um, very, very different time period. So you have to imagine that for, for him, like kids mean wealth. Kids mean prosperity. And you have to, this is kind of Alex's little, like, you know, interpretation about this, so don't get too bent out of shape about this. Uh, you have to imagine that he's watched all of his friends raise their kids. <laughs> With just a tinge of jealousy. No, no, I'm happy. You had another one. Oh, you're pregnant again. Okay, that's, that's great. You have to imagine all of the sleepless nights that he had consoling his wife. It's going to be okay. Maybe we'll try again. And, and as they got older and older and older, and it's not in the scriptures, but, but I, it's not hard to imagine. Maybe the miscarriages that she had, the attempts that they had at having kids, and just the incredible disappointment, all of this accumulated experience building their belief were not the kind of people who have children. So here he is. And he's presented with a choice about what reality he's gonna believe. Reality one, which is his circumstance, the very sensible, I'm old, I'm not gonna have any kids, it's just the way that it is. Or there's reality two, which is this, God's crazy reality which seeks to upend everything that he's called normal. Reality one and reality two. If you're in his situation, which are you believing to be true? Verse six. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Did you see that? What reality does Abraham believe? There's reality one, his very normal reality, just all everything, the way it's always been. And then there's this crazy reality, reality two. And Abram believes reality two. Abram believes God's reality, and then what does God do? He's like, oh, that's righteousness. What is righteous? What is righteousness? It's believing God's reality over your own. <laughs> We're going to get into it. 
He's thinking saved. Do you see this? He's thinking renewed. The conformed mind only takes into account the impossibilities of life. If, if, you, if, if you're constantly going through life and you don't believe God can do the impossible, your mind is conformed with all due respect. But the renewed mind agrees with what God says regardless of what culture or experience would have you call normal. Do you see what that is? It's heaven to earth, not earth to heaven. You need to write this down. You gotta get this. It is righteous to agree with God's reality over what makes sense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what, there, there, there's a, been a, a um, generation, I will say, of powerless followers of Jesus. And, and there's multiple different reasons for this. But I think one of the reasons for this is that the church wants to be safe. And so the church has, come to, has given a virtue to human wisdom. Human wisdom always looks sensible, but it will never get the impossible. Human wisdom will tell you to live a certain way, and you go, oh, but it's wise, it makes sense, I should say for this, I should do that, I should do this, I should. you know, I don't know if I really should give my money here, I don't know if I should really not go to school, I don't know if I should really do this or that, and you go, what makes sense is to do this. And then you place a virtue on it as though that's what God's will is for your life. And then you wonder, why, why am I not getting the results that Jesus got in his life? Because your mind has been conformed to think earth to heaven rather than the other way around. Well, you think about like what Justin just shared with us. Um, asking God... <laughs> Before you go to the grocery store, show me, if, is there anybody that you want me to pray for? Is there anybody that I'm going to in interact with today? Would you just give me an image of that person, or would you just give me a name, or, or something like that? What, what is that? Is that sensible thinking? No, sensible thinking is this. I got, a, I got an errand to do. It's just Fred Myers. I, I go there all the time. I got a class to go to. It's the same old professor. Renewed thinking says, at any point in time, heaven is seeking to break into my reality. What could God be up to right now? I want to think like you and bring myself into alignment with you. Paul, um, and, and maybe you think, well, that's fine for you. Um, I, I don't know if that's for me. No, no, no. Paul builds the entire basis of salvation off this idea. This is Romans chapter 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Not, not language that should be in the mouth of any husband, but it was there in the Bible. <laughs> Yet, this is key, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who what? Believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So no, 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 no. 
You don't get an option as a follower of Jesus whether you're gonna believe his reality or your own reality. It's how you got saved was believing his reality. What he's saying, what Paul is saying is that we have the same opportunity that Abraham had. You want wholeness? You want peace? You want resurrection someday? You want a face-to-face relationship with the Father? You have to understand this, and you need to write this down. All of the fruit of Christ's sacrifice, all of the fruit that comes from his death and resurrection enters your life by taking God at his word. It is not an auxiliary thing. It is the core of our faith. Is saying, this is sensible. I'm rejecting that to see what you say. That's the renewed mind. That's how you get your mind renewed. That's how you think like him. I really think that there are three keys to mental health or renewed thinking. There's probably more, but I gotta, you know, I'm a pastor, I gotta talk about threes. So um, there's really three uh, keys to mental health or to renewed thinking. And I I think these do a pretty good job at, at describing it. There's truth, there's praise, and there's thanksgiving. You want, you want mental health issues? Run in the face of truth, praise, and thanksgiving. These three things will cause you to begin to think heaven to earth, not the other way around. So firstly, we need to know the truth and we need to fight with truth. We need to know the truth and we need to fight with truth. Next slide. What the enemy would like to do is present you with his reality. With that reality, place fear in your heart. Fill your life with meaningless, self-medicating, and a lot of stress, and very little kingdom expansion as a result. So here's what, this is going to get real. Here's what the enemy would like to do. I guess we just need to start pointing to things so that you can get this. What the enemy would like to do is he'd like to say, Coronavirus is coming. It's very sensible. It's coming. I've read the news article. I actually thought I had it for a little while when I was in Australia. I was sick for like three weeks. Um, So maybe I'm patient zero. Just kidding. Uh, Okay, so um, he'd like to say say this to you. Coronavirus is coming. Uh, This got us yesterday. We went to the... I got to call us out. I'm sorry. We went to the grocery store yesterday, and we went down the water aisle because I hate drinking Newberg's water, so we always have to get jugs of water. So anyways, I, we're going down the water aisle, and all the water's gone. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, if this is real. Uh, <laughs> coronavirus is here. Like, and we're like, we got to get some water. We bought, I think it was like silly. We bought like nine jugs of water yesterday. Anyway, okay. So, okay, so here, I'm not, this is me. Anytime I'm preaching, I'm preaching to me too. So um, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to say, be afraid. This thing is coming. Be afraid. You have the diagnosis. Be afraid. You're never going to get married. Be afraid. This, 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 or that. And then what you do is you spend your whole life reacting to him rather than saying, what do you think about this so that I can respond to you and live fruitful? What, what, what we're invited into is a relationship of response so that we don't have to react and live a meaningless life. So Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
Are you captive to your thinking or is your thinking captive to you? Think about it. Are you captive to your thoughts or are, are your thoughts captive to you? Paul's language is visceral. It's violent. It's demolish. It's take captive. What is it? It's war language, right? What Paul is talking about is he's like, you need a framework of thinking so that you filter in real time what is truth and what is a lie. You need a filter so that as you go throughout your life and you're presented with the opportunity to have fear, just to be honest, like me yesterday in the grocery store, you're presented with the opportunity to have fear, you have a real-time filter that says, okay, hang on a second. What do you say? You say nothing is impossible. You say that, that we're called to, like, I, I, you can't get away from it. We're called to heal. Jesus told us, it's in the Great Commission. Okay, so you give, you've given us the ability to actually step in the gap and pray for people. Not everybody I pray for gets healed, but man, I've seen people get healed, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna align myself with that again. And I'm gonna renew my thinking about this particular issue. How do we know the truth? How do we know what's true? This is so simple, but we have to be people of the scriptures. We have to love the word. We've been given truth. Uh, one of the, um, I think the biggest gifts in our church is, is Jim Trout. He's one of our elders. And anytime I, yeah, can we, yeah, we can clap for Jim Trout. Um, and uh, one, one of the, the greatest privileges is to sit with Jim to explain an issue, and he just says, oh man, you know, well it just says right here. <laughs> and you're like, Oh yeah, I forgot in the kingdom answers are simple. And, but it's just so beautiful. I, was, I, I meet with uh, people from the church, some of you guys, uh, throughout the week, and I'll meet with people who have met with them, and they're just like, my time with the Lord and reading the scriptures is on a whole nother level because of that guy's voice in my life. Um, so I just love that about you, Jim. Thank you so much. Um, but it's just so, so good. It's like, come back to the truth. Come back to the truth. You need to know the truth. You're, when, when the Bible says that you've been equipped to face anything, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, it's also saying that, that, that means when you step into a situation that you don't think you have the answer for, may it not be because you didn't find the answer in here. Make sure that you know what the truth is. Make sure that you know what you have at your disposal. Um, I find one of the uh, dynamics that causes Christians not to live into what's been made available for them, um, this, 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 tr this kind of issue that people don't know what covenant they live under. Um, so we could talk about the renewed mind, we could talk about God's intention, but it's, his, his, your understanding of his goodness is only as good as your understanding of what covenant you, you exist under. Um... The danger deep down is that if you think God relates to you like you see in the Old Testament, you're probably not gonna ask for or reach for some of the things that God's made available to you today in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Um, certain things uh, were changed by the cross. So there were certain things that they existed uh, before the cross, and then when the cross came, they changed. Um, th there are certain things that uh, continue through the cross. They've been, they were the same before the cross, and now they're the same after Jesus. And then there's certain things that um, end at the cross. They exist before the cross, and then when the cross happens, they end. Uh, so here's my beautiful, beautiful picture that I made for you guys this week. Uh, to try to explain this a little bit, I, I actually think this is really important, so if you want to get your phone out and take a photo of it, I'd recommend that. 
Um, I want to just walk through some of these things. So so stopped at the cross. What stopped at the cross? What existed in the Old Testament that was decisively ended at the cross? Uh, An external law. Um, ceremonial law and the sacrificial aspect of the law. So we no longer go to the temple to burn things or to um, pray in a certain direction or to you know, ask the priest to go you know, behind the curtain for us. God is no longer trying to control us from the outside in to get to our hearts, and, and that's stopped at the cross. Um, the wrath of God on the people of God. Uh, you read all throughout the Old Testament um, that God, you know, you just, I was, I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and you're like, dang. He's got some fiery language for you, people of Israel. And so you see that God is just pouring out his wrath on, on the sin of Israel. It's, it's really intense. Um, that changes after the cross, right? That stops at the cross and no longer. Why? Because we're now covered by the blood of Jesus. So, so think about this. You guys know the um, image of the blood being uh, spread on the doorposts of the homes in Egypt before the Passover, Right? And what took place is if you had the blood of the, of the um, sheep spread over your door, then the angel of death would pass over and you would get to live while others were punished and, and died. And so you think about that metaphor for the new covenant. What is it? Jesus' blood covers me. I'm in Christ. And so now death doesn't touch me. Now there's no wrath left for me. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Um, death stopped at the cross. Jesus died, was resurrected, and now, the Bible says that he was the first fruit of many to come after him. So now we get resurrected. Uh, What was changed by the cross? Well, God's presence is no longer in a room accessed by a select few. The temple is now those who are in Christ, people with the Holy Spirit. So you have access, if you are in Christ tonight, you have access to the presence of God, the very thing that people longed for throughout all of history, but only a select few got to taste. Uh, judgment changes. Um, ju- ju- there's no more judgment left for people who are in Christ, right? Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's not interested in punishing people. He's already taken punishment out for on Jesus. But there will be judgment someday. And when you are in Christ and you stand before God on that last day, he will say, my son's blood covers you. You're righteous. You believed me. You trusted me like Abram. Um, but there will be people who didn't, and they will t- give an account for the lives that they have lived. Uh, character change happens through grace instead of punishment. So instead of there being like, hey, there's a threat of punishment, so you better be good. No, Romans 2, 4 says this. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So God is constantly pouring out kindness in an attempt, pouring out love to bring us into alignment with the truth. What is unchanged by the cross? Promises of hope. I was, my wife was just reading this passage today. I think it's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2. Um, One, or something like that? Uh, Anyway, it says all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you have access to all of the promises. You you know, sometimes you go to churches and you're like, they took that promise out of context. Uh, Yeah, because all of the promises find their yes and amen in Christ. That person is in Christ. They now have access to the heart of God through that promise. Yeah, some of you want to write me an email. I know, go for it. Um, Promises of hope, we now have access to those. Faith like Abraham, it's the same. The faith that Abraham had to believe God and get righteous is the same faith, the same quality of faith that we have to believe God and uh, become righteous. The moral laws is the same. It's repeated by the New Testament authors. Um, Many people want to say, oh, you know, the Bible gets looser on the law as it goes on. Well, there's only one thing, well, there's several, but but this is an important one, that it actually gets narrower on, and that's sexuality. The moral law is still the case. And then lastly, the purpose of life. You want to know what the purpose of living actually is? It's the same thing it was in the beginning, to walk hand in hand with your creator, partnering 
for the flourishing of all creation. Okay, that was a lot, but I think that's important. Um, often I see people paralyzed by this objection. Hey, Alex, I hear all that, but do you see the anger? Do you see the wrath? Do you see the visceral and violent language of the Old Testament about how God feels about idolatry or sin? And, and just to be honest with you, man, here I am, and I can think of 10 things just from this past week that would put me in the camp of evildoers of the Old Testament. So what do you say about that? We need to get this squared away in our minds. In the Old Testament, the severity of sin is being confronted with the severity of a righteous God. That's what you're reading about. The severity of sin is being confronted with the severity of a righteous God. In the New Testament, Jesus becomes sin so that all that severity and wrath is poured out on him so there's none left for those who have his blood on them. Okay? Let me ask you this, and I don't need to answer, but just internally. You need to ask yourself this question. Are you in Christ? It's a technical term. Are you born again? Okay. To apply the wrath of the Old Testament on you who are in Christ today is to claim that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not enough. You're like, Jesus kind of became sin so that I kind of could become his righteousness. <laughs> That's not what the scriptures say. Um, could it be that the gospel is actually good news? That God doesn't motivate good behavior with wrath anymore, according to Romans chapter 1. And that with the sacrifice of Jesus and the defeat of death, God has no more wrath left. So he stands as an undepletable lover, just showing you love nonstop, saying, I paid for that, so here's love. Uh, and that too, I paid for that. Here's love. Here's love. Here's love. We live under grace, which doesn't mean that the bar has been lowered. In fact, the bar has been raised by Jesus' life. And he knew he could do this because Jesus understood that his love was always more able to motivate change at a deeper level than our fear of punishment ever could. And that's the new covenant. And that's what it's like to live in the new covenant. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath... So there you have it. If you think you were appointed to suffer wrath, there you have it. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. What this is saying is that whether you're out there doing good for him, doing good for the kingdom, or whether you're not doing anything at all and you're just taking a nap, you're still approved of and you're loved. That's good news. It really is. So here's the challenge. Jesus is asked at one point, what is the work of God? And, and we would probably answer that with the same thing we answered with what is righteous. You think it's like reading the Bible, studying it, learning the original languages, or maybe it's like serving people or feeding the poor or something like that. And Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He answers the question with this. The work of God is to believe in him who God has sent. Rehearsing God's reality every day is how you renew your mind and its work. Every day saying, this is the truth. Oh, I'm gonna believe it again. I, everything else would tell me otherwise, but I'm gonna believe it again. That's how you renew your mind. It's, I'm presented with two realities. 
I'm presented with this very difficult situation in front of me, but I'm also presented with this reality that you call me more than a conqueror. You say that you're good, you're, you're good and that you're not trying to punish me, to change me. You say that I have the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and that I can do what Jesus did. You say all of those things, so it doesn't feel like it, but right now, I'm gonna come into alignment and believe that reality in my life. And that, when you do that, righteousness. When you do that, oh, you're righteous. So do you know the truth? To end, um, we need to talk just briefly about the power of praise and thanksgiving. There's three keys to mental health. Knowing the truth, fighting with the truth, and then praise and thanksgiving. Uh, Jack Ammon, our uh, piano extraordinaire, um, he pointed this out to me the other day, and I'd never really thought about this before, but it's, it's really beautiful. In the first chapter of uh, the book of Romans, Paul lays out the path to sin. How do people end up in sin? How do people end up uh, debauched? And he, he, he traces it all back to this one moment. And here's what he says in Romans, verse one, or, uh, Romans 1, verse 21. He says this, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but watch what happens, but their thinking became futile or weak, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see that? It's your ability to worship, to surrender, to praise. It's your ability to give thanks, even when you don't want to, that affects your thinking. It does. What Romans 1 teaches us is that worship and gratitude makes your thinking strong, but a life without worship and gratitude makes your thinking futile and weak. When you get thankful for what you have, rather than focusing on the lack that you see around yourself, your thinking becomes powerful. Your thinking becomes renewed, and it becomes easier and easier to think renewed as you face the issues of life. Have you ever um, been confused about something and then you spent time in worship and all of a sudden you had peace about that issue? Some of you just experienced that tonight. Um, worship squares up thinking because you become so focused on his character and his goodness. What is that? It's heaven to earth. So let's do this. Let's all stand together.